You know, the story is told of an atheist who was living next door to an older woman who was a Christian. And every day he could hear her praying and praising God for all the things that he can work out. And uh, one day the old woman fell in hard times. She had no food in her house. And the atheist living next door overheard her begin to pray to God to please send her some food. She was convinced that no matter what was going on in her life, that it wasn't too big for her God. This atheist thought, you know what, I can teach her a lesson. So he ran down to the grocery store. He bought a bunch of bags of groceries. Came back to her home, stuck it on her porch when she wasn't looking. The lady came out, saw the groceries. She began praising God that he worked it out. And he jumped out from the bushes. This atheist said, aha, I'm the one who bought the groceries for you. It wasn't God, it was me. And without blinking an eye, she just said, Lord, thank you. And you made the devil pay for him. (laughs) You know, the story, you know, again, illustrates the danger of making assumptions. You know, if you recall from the last time that we were together, Jesus was asked a vital question from a member of the audience or the crowd of folks who were following him, listening to him teach. And the person who asked the question did so under the wrong assumption that he or she already knew the answer. More realistically, it was probably a man in that particular culture who would be bold enough to ask a question out in public. And so he asked the question, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And the reason that he asked the question was he was convinced that he was one of the few. As a member of Israel, as a tribe, you know, of the, of the tribe of Israel, he knew that as a Jew that he certainly was in the category of those few people who were being saved and would enter the kingdom of God. And there were many who were on the road to destruction, but it certainly wasn't him. And he just wanted to reaffirm with the audience what he believed in his heart. I'm in. These other people are out. And just tell them that so they can all have a clear understanding. You know, as Jesus often did in those cases of general speculative questions, and it's something that you and I need to do as well, and that is rather than talk about and speculate and get in all these conversations that we tend to get into, we need to be able to make it more personal and focus it. And it was as if in his answer he was saying, you know what, yeah, are are there a few people who are being saved? You know what, really all that matters to you, sir, is are you one of them? And that really is what it's all about. God is a personal God. He wants to make sure you and I are aware of our need for a relationship with Him or that we have one. For those of us who do, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And so we need to recognize and understand that God is a personal God, that that He not only knows us and that we can know Him and have fellowship with Him. And that was the basis of the question. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13 where we'll pick up where we left off. In this particular section, we look at these four truths that Jesus stated as they relate to the question, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And in order to be one of the few being saved from the judgment of God for sin, we need to personalize it and look at it from the standpoint that, you know what, I say you must repent of your sins, but I also must repent of my sins. In order to be saved from the coming judgment or wrath of God for sin, you must repent. I must repent. And the word means to turn from sin and to turn to God. To have a change of heart and a change of mind about who we think we are. There's nothing good in us whatsoever. None are righteous. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. We've all, like sheep, have gone astray in our mother's womb. We were conceived iniquity. And the Bible clearly teaches what we know as the, the doctrine of original sin. That we're all born into the world, stamped on our, on our souls. That we're sinners, alienated from God. And in desperate need of His forgiveness in our life. And as he goes through it, he begins to talk about what it means to repent and what's involved. And the prerequisite of repentance is found in verse 24 where he says you must strive to enter by the narrow door 
For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In Matthew chapter 7, we find a parallel passage. He says the same thing. Many are on the road to destruction, for that road is broad, but the gate to heaven is a narrow gate, and very few are on it, and few who are walking it. And so he says, you just agonize over it. We need to agonize personally over the question, have I truly repented in a biblical, uh, from a biblical definition? Have I truly uh, turned from sin? Have I truly recognized my need for God's forgiveness? Have I truly recognized my need to turn from those things that are evil before God and to do that which is right before Him? Or do I still do things that are wrong before God as outlined in the objective standard that's set forth in Scripture? I need to agonize over, am I on the narrow way? If the narrow road is the only way to find entrance into the kingdom of God, am I on that road? You know, are we on the right track? Are we going the right direction? Or am I walking the right way? Am I walking in a manner that's worthy of my calling? You know, I need to agonize over that. I need to struggle over that. I need to agonize over, have I truly entered the narrow gate? That word striving or agonizing is a struggle to enter has to be so intense that it can be described as an agony of soul and spirit. It should be something that's so troubling to us because we, the, the obvious inference here is that we can run into a certain danger and the danger is, is that somehow if we think that we are belong to a certain church, that that does it for us. We finally har- arrive. And what he's saying is that we need to agonize over whether we're going in the right direction, having entered the narrow gate, or we walk in the right path, are we on the right road. And we should agonize over not whether our life is exemplary of what God says the life of His people should be all about. And, and, and it's something that we need to recognize and understand that we must always as believers be going forward because by necessity, if we're not moving forward in our walk with God, we're going in reverse. If you're not growing in your faith, you haven't arrived the moment that you repented of sin and trusted in Christ. It, you, you become a child of God to those who believe in His name. But God's goal for all of His people is that He takes children of God and matures them into men and women of faith who are used by God to accomplish His purposes and to serve His needs this side of eternity? Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and of the faith? Are you walking in a manner now that's different than you were yesterday and the day before and the day before that and the month and the year before that? Are you moving in a positive direction? Do you see growth in your life? Do you see fruit or evidence of it? Are you just content to say, oh, I've repented of sin, I've trusted in Christ. Okay, now I can just live my life any way that I want to live and it really doesn't matter because I'm in and the Bible says that's foolishness. The Apostle Paul said, you know what? I press on. I forget everything that lies behind. I forget all the good things and the bad things of the past. I forget the sin that God has forgotten. I forget, you know, the good things that I have done in His service because that doesn't matter to me today. Today is a day of obedience. And what matters is, God, that I redeem this day wisely for, on your behalf. I don't care if you've served a year or two or ten or twenty or thirty or forty and now you sit back and rest. There's no resting for God's people until we're in His presence. We're to be busy and active in His service. You and the gifts that God has given us to equip the saints for work of ministry is my responsibility and those who teach the word of God so that we get busy for God's sake. There's no resting. Our rest will be in His presence and in His timing. But until then, we better be agonizing and struggling over, am I what I think I am? Who I think I am? See, we need to be, it needs to be so intense. And, you know, we're always going forward. I like it, that it's like climbing a mountain. It was said of two gallant, gallant climbers who died on Mount Everest. They said of them was this. When last seen, they were going strong for the top. 
I like that when we were vacationing in Switzerland several years ago in Zermatt and one of the tombstones it said, he died climbing. And you know what? I want to die climbing. And I hope you do too. I want to die climbing and moving forward in my walk with the Lord and being used to the fullest in His service. And Jesus talks about that we got to strive or to struggle or to agonize to enter that narrow gate and also to walk that narrow path. See, works will never save us from our sins, but I will guarantee you this, without works, you are not truly saved. See, works can't save us. It's by grace we're saved through faith. But if we're not working the works that God has ordained for us to do, then you better ask yourself the question, do I, gen- do ha- do I have genuine biblical saving faith? Or is mine just a profession of my lips like those that Jesus saw and said, but Lord, we did all these things in your name. He said, you know what? I didn't know you. I didn't know you. And that's exactly what he says again here. And the peril of waiting too long to repent is that when the door of opportunity shuts... In verse 25, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you begin to stand outside, knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. And he'll answer and say to you, I don't know where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence. We taught in your streets. And he'll say, I'll tell you, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. The peril of waiting too long to repent is that the window of opportunity is a certain window that we don't know in our timing what that opportunity is. But when the door slams shut, it's shut. And when it's shut, there is no negotiation. There are no do-overs. There is no knocking at the door. There is no begging to get in. And that's exactly what they're saying. They're locked out of the door saying, but hey, let us in, but let us in. You ain't getting in. And the reason you're not getting in is because he doesn't know you. You've never repented of your sin. You've never turned from sin. You've never turned to God. He doesn't know you. And he says, and the door of opportunity is shut. It is appointed for man to die once, period. Then comes judgment. And that's what we have to look forward to, to those who have not trusted in Christ. And the Bible clearly teaches that those who don't, there will be punishment. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I want you to notice before I move forward in verse 27, the evidence of a person who has not come to genuine saving biblical faith is a person that continues to do what's wrong before God. It becomes very evident. You can say all you want, but the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the work. The proof is in the behavior. It's in the lifestyle. It's in the the things we choose to do. And he's saying that the reason that they were indicted before God and that they didn't enter the kingdom of God is that they were not, quote, born again. They were not repentant of their sin. And it was evidence because they continue to do wrong before God. And that's the greatest test in our culture that, you know, so many people claim to be Christians, And yet their lifestyle indicates that the choices that they make violate the clearly revealed will of God. And the point is this. There are many people who are deceived. There are many people on the broad path, the wide path that's going to destruction, deceived into believing that because they say something with their lips, that that makes them good with God. And it's not a matter of saying with our lips that we must profess with our lips and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead. But at the same time, we must also walk the walk. You can't get away from that in Scripture. You've got to live a lifestyle that's commensurate with a person who is truly a child of God. And if you're not, the Bible says that door slams shut. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are being cast out. 
There will be punishment, eternal punishment, weeping and great sorrow and gnashing of teeth and anger and rage. And if you think about this, all of eternity, sorrow and rage, sorrow and rage, that mood swing that goes on and on for all of eternity. That, you know what, I'm, so, I'm sorrow, but it wasn't a sorrow under repentance. It was a sorrow that I'm experiencing this consequence this fate, and there's a huge difference between the two. There was a sorrow that leads to repentance, and there's just a sorrow because of the consequences of our actions, and we see that all the time. And so he says that, you know what, we joke about things like this in life. In fact, somebody submitted this Mother's Day joke for me, and, you know, it wasn't quite the, the joke I thought that I could, could tell then, but um, I could kind of throw it out now. But it was a lady who was telling her friend about this gift that she had received. She said, my husband bought me a mood ring. And she says, look at this. When I'm in a good mood, it turns green. And her friend said, well, what happens when you're in a bad mood? She says, when I'm in a bad mood, it leaves a red mark on his forehead. <laughs> you, know, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, we, we, we joke and we laugh about it. We, you know, we've all been there. You know, the Dr. Jekyll and I better hide days that we have. And, and so we, we, we laugh about that because we all, you know, have our little moody things, you know. And, and yet at the same time, the problem and the seriousness of this text is that in this particular text, that doesn't go away. It is for all of eternity. There was weeping and sorrow and gnashing of teeth and anger and rage. A life of regret because the opportunity was there and they failed to respond to it. But for those who repent, the Bible has good news and they will come on verse 29. From the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God, there will be people from all over the world from every generation, from every nationality, from every ethnic group, from every race, from every economic, socio status. There will be people, the, the, the gospel is an open invitation. And while this Jewish man thought it was very narrow, what he learned that was, you know what? No, the invitation is broad, but it's a very narrow path, a very narrow route, a very narrow way. And because it's so narrow, not many will accept God's narrow route. And so we look and say, but at the same time, Genesis 3 tells us that through Abraham, through Abraham, I'm sorry, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So not just the, not just the Jewish people, but all people, for God so loved the entirety of the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The expanse of the gospel is to all people. And yet there's a principle that Jesus clearly summarizes. He says, behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. He's saying, you thought because you were Jewish that you were in. But what you're finding is that those who heard the good news first ended up being last and left out because they did not respond appropriately. And those who came last, in the case of the Gentiles heard the good news and responded according to the appropriate response that's found in Scripture. And here you are thinking you are in and you're out and thinking they were out and they're in. And there's the paradox of God's plan. And so he goes on and, he's, and he goes on and he goes forward. And in order to be saved, to be one of the few, you, you and I must repent and we must also receive Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. Verse 31 through 33. Just at that time, some Pharisees came up to him saying, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
And he said to them, You go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. He says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. I want you to stop and think about this as a, as a person in that audience, as a Jewish person who's listening to this. He just heard Jesus say that, you know what, you're going to be locked out and you're going to be looking in and you're going to see Gentiles dining at the Lord's table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to see Gentiles who you thought were locked out in and you thought you were in. You're going to be out. And you can imagine the anger and the rage that had taken place. They were already sick and tired of him as it was. The Pharisees had had enough of him. The Sadducees had had enough of him. The the scribes had had enough of him. After those six woes that he had proclaimed upon them, saying, you're hypocrites, you're whitewashed tombs, you're leading people astray, you're not taking people the narrow route, you're on the road that leads to destruction, you're like an empty tomb and they walk over you and they think you're leading them, but you're leading them in the wrong direction. And at that time it says they gathered together and they conspired to go after him and to get him. They were going to try to stop him from doing what he was doing. And so all of a sudden we see this particular, what appears to be at face value, change of heart. But it's not a change of heart because Jesus' answer gives away what exactly is going on. Think about it. The Pharisees are warning Jesus, you better get out of Dodge, man. Because Herod wants to, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' answer, you know, he, he, he demonstrates an answer here that helps us to recognize and understand. In Jesus' answer, we find two truths. Number one, in verse 32, it reminds us that God's plan will never be thwarted by any man, no matter how powerful they may appear. Because look what he says. Go away, you know, Herod wants to kill you. Get out of town. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. You know, when I was reading through this, I thought, wow, you know, this is the only time that I can ever find in Scripture where Jesus speaks with such contempt of a human being. Herod had already murdered John the Baptist. Herod comes from a long line of murderers and evil people. And Jesus said to the people that came to him, said, you go tell that fox. And in, in order to, to understand the, the depth of what he said, the word for fox or vixen was that for a female fox, not for a masculine fox. And he's saying, you go tell that fox, that insignificant, worthless human being, that I will go about doing my business according to my timetable. And there's nothing he can do that'll stop it. And man, I'll tell you what, they were delighted to run and tell Herod what he just said. Yes, we finally got him to say something that's going to get him to trouble. They went running back to him. Hey, Herod, he called you a female fox, a worthless, insignificant, not even human being. And I'll tell you this, when Herod called for Jesus later and Jesus appeared before him at the trial, Jesus had nothing to say to him. And I'll tell you this. There is no greater lost place to be in this world than when Jesus has nothing further to say to you or I. May God help us that if we would ever get to that point where he had nothing further to say. He didn't answer him. He said nothing to him. There was nothing left for him to do. That's a troubling thought. You know, what he was saying was, I will continue. And I want you to notice as he says, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. See, for Herod, he was saying, look, you know what? You go tell Herod, I'm going to go about my business according to God's timetable. 
And then you go tell him, I will finish my goal. Now, the same word that's used, finish my goal or complete my task, that we see I reach my goal in verse 32, is the same words that Jesus uttered from the cross when he said, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. I accomplished the goal that I came here to accomplish. It is finished. And nothing anyone could do could ever stop God's plan. And that's a wonderful truth. You know, I'm on my time schedule, not man's. See, the narrow plan, that's why Jesus later would say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. John 10, 18. See, the narrow plan of God was that Jesus would give his life a ransom for many. The words, for God so loved the world, he gave. The word gave is that of a sacrifice. He gave as a sacrifice his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. The plan of God was that Jesus Christ would come into the world and that he would die upon the cross. And the strategy of the enemy was to do everything possible to use everyone that he could to stop Jesus from finishing this work. See, he completed the course. He accomplished the task or the goal. Matthew 16, if you remember, there was a time where Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, I'm going into Jerusalem, and when I go there, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be turned over to evil people. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. But don't worry, three days later, I will rise again, and I'll meet you in Galilee. And Peter, thinking he was doing him a favor, said, Lord, that'll never happen to you. We're not going to let anybody hurt you. We're not going to let anybody touch you. We're not going to let anybody crucify you. That'll never happen to you. And Jesus turned around and said to him, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have your mind and your eyes fixed on the things of God, but on man's, your own selfish interests. You don't want me to die because there's something in it for you that I don't. You believe that there is. But you know what? This is God's plan. This is what I came to do. I came to seek and to save that was lost. I came to, to, to run, as it were, from Bethlehem to Calvary to accomplish the goal, which was that I would die as a substitute for all of humanity and effective for those who would choose to believe that narrow plan. Have you believed the narrow plan? The narrow plan is that we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that he rose again from the dead. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 says. I deliver to you of utmost importance what I heard. And that is the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he rose again according to the scriptures. And he appeared to us. And finally to Paul, to himself, a man who was unworthy for that to happen. But he said, you know what? It's according to the scriptures. Acts 2. By the predetermined plan of God. The narrow way, the narrow path, the, the plan of God was that Jesus Christ would die upon the cross for the sins of the world and that those who believe would have access to God through His sacrifice and His substitutionary death on our behalf. That's the narrow path. That's the narrow plan. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. See, the purpose of God was that Jesus would go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. That's why he said, look at that. Nevertheless, I journey on today and tomorrow the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. They've had a history throughout, their, you know, throughout the ages that every prophet that God sent him got killed in Jerusalem. 
He said, you know, you know what? Hey, it's going to happen again. I'm going into Jerusalem, and I'm going to be murdered there just like you murdered every other God of God's messengers. But this time it will be for all of eternity, and I will die on the cross for the sins of the world, and it will be finished, the plan of God. And I will rise again three days later. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when we look at this and understand this, we begin to see a portrait of Jesus that, you know, sometimes we miss. In his humanity, I want you to stop and think about the bravery that was involved. Think of how cruel it would be that we would take somebody on death row and move them every day one step closer to the gas chamber. You know, not just that day that it happens, but every day, move them one step closer, one step closer, one step closer. I see the next step. And, then, and, and as, as we go, you know, it, just to know and to understand, you want, you want to talk about a hero You want to talk about a hero of our souls? I want you to stop and think about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross on your behalf and my behalf. A deliberate sacrifice so that you and I could find forgiveness for our sins. Every day it loomed larger that he had to go to Jerusalem and he knew the fate that awaited him. But it was the fate that was the fate that had been preordained before the beginning of the world. That was the plan of God. To redeem lost man to himself. Man, I'll tell you what. It it gives you a whole new appreciation and understanding of what Jesus did for you and for me. See, to be one of the few, we must repent of our sins. To be one of the few, we must receive Jesus Christ's death on our behalf and also his resurrection. And also, we must respond to his invitation as found in verse 34. Notice, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would have none of it. In this verse, Jesus paints a picture that is both beautiful and tragic. It's a portrait of of love and compassion, of protection and provision. You know, it's a tender picture of God's mothering love. If you'll notice, Jesus expressed his desire for his people with an image with which they were very familiar. See, the emphasis on her wings reminds all of those in the audience at the time of a a passage in God's word that was first used of this image in scripture. And it's found in the song of Moses where it celebrates God's care for his people, Israel. It says in Deuteronomy 32, 10 and 11, in a desert land, he found him. In a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and and hovers over its young. That spreads its wings to catch them and carries on in its pinions. You know the word picture is that of an eagle spreading her vast wings in protection. Of even scooping fallen chicks who have fallen from the air and carrying them aloft to safety. You know, all throughout the Psalms, it's a word picture that's used on a regular basis. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. How mer- have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. And I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. You know, as we stop and think about that, think about being tucked under his wings. It adds sustenance and warmth and security. 
And it's not a sentimental image. It's one that Jesus actually has done for us. It's a metaphor that's chosen by God to help you and I understand what it means to be under his wings. And the question that I have is a question that it was raised at that point is this. You know what? Are you willing? See, the picture is that God is willing and able. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to respond to that invitation, come to me. But the question is, are you willing? Because the problem that's identified here is, I want you to notice is, and you would have none of it. You would have none of it. Look at this problem. What he's saying to them is, you know, here I am to die for you, and you would have none of it. Here I am inviting you to come to me, and you would have none of it. You wanted nothing to do with God's plan. You wanted nothing to do with God's purpose. You wanted nothing to do with God's narrow plan of salvation. You would have none of it. You refused my way and you rejected me as God's Savior. You would have none of it. Folks, people today are in the same position. God is saying, I love you and, I, you know, and there's no hope in and of yourself. And I've come and I've sent my son to die on the cross for you. He has risen from the dead. He is alive today. He has proven that He is the Savior of the world, the one who can give eternal life for all who come to Him. Will you come to Him? Or will you have none of it? Those are the two options. Come to Him or reject Him. Respond positively to the invitation or reject the only Savior that the world will ever know. It's up to us. You know, I hear people all the time, and, 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 this, and this goes to what we're talking about as far as, you know, these generalist speculative things. I hear Christians argue all the time about our pre, pre, you know, uh, predestination and God is chosen and are people chosen to be lost and chosen to be saved and predestined for this or predestined from that. And the harmony of the Word of God is so clear that God wishes none to perish, that He has extended His invitation to all. But because of his sovereign knowledge and understanding, he recognizes that some will not receive that invitation. They won't respond appropriately. They will reject him. And God knows that ahead of time. But Jesus continued to reach out to Judas even at the Last Supper. He was begging him, reconsider what it is that you're going to do. And yet he knew in his sovereignty what his choice was, but he continued to reach to him. You and I could get, just got to stop all the foolishness and speculation of all of these theological arguments and get it down to the personal level, and that is this. Are we extending God's invitation to those who are lost, regardless of whether we think they're chosen or not? It doesn't matter, because God wants us to go into all the world and share the gospel. He's not saying, just go to the ones that I've chosen. We don't know who they are until they respond. The beautiful picture of that is a person who has responded to the finished work of Christ, repents of sin and trusts in Christ's death and resurrection. As they walk into the kingdom of God, it says, you know what? Count unto me all you who are, or are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And as we walk through and we look back at the archway, we see, I have known you from the foundation of the world. See, that's our understanding. Will we totally understand it? No. Why? Because God is God and we're not. And we can't even come close to understanding. But you cannot get away from the fact that the invitation is open to everyone. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to bring you under my wings of protection and warmth and security and sustenance and salvation. But you would have none of it. Will you have it? Will you join in? And accept the invitation. That's your responsibility. They're responsi- they were responsible for their lostness. 
They were responsible for their aloneness. They were responsible for the consequences of denying that invitation and rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. And because of that, they were responsible for their own choice. And boy, I'll tell you what, it was a disaster for them. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. You know, we're told historically, Josephus, a Jewish historian, said, man, you know what, it was such a tragedy. What happened in Jerusalem in 68 to 70 A.D. under Titus. It was brutal, and the historical accounts are just, just, it's terrible. Children and young people swollen from starvation. Famished women with babies in their arms in the alleys were filled with corpses of the elderly. They roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed whenever their doom overtook them. But there was no lamenting or wailing because famine had strangled their emotions. Jerusalem could not bury all the bodies, so they were flung over the wall. And the silence was broken only by the laughter of robbers stripping the bodies. They were left in desolation. What a terrible, tragic consequence of rejecting Jesus Christ. But the wonderful hope for Israel and the wonderful hope for all people is that I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a wonderful truth that is in Scripture that God has not done with the nation of Israel. In Romans 11, we're told that they will, they will worship him and praise him, the one in whom they had rejected. And so as we look at this, is a, a clear application for everyone today, and that is us. For any of us to live outside of a relationship with Christ is to live in exposed, desolate, it be, to be exposed and desolate in a world of spiritual promise, in a world filled with the hope that Christ has come to give us. In closing, Alistair Begg tells the story of an encouraging encounter that he had as he was preparing a message that he was supposed to deliver at Harvard University. He had risen early in the morning and found a restaurant next to Harvard Yard where he planned to apply some, quote, finishing touches to his address. And I want to pick up the account where his friend tells the story. <coughs> and we read this. He says, And as he worked, he watched Cambridge wake up and the restaurant filled with a variety of weird and wonderful people. Some had slept in the street. Others were apparently regulars. He was out of his element. The university culture was overwhelming and he felt insignificant. And he began to think about his insignificance and how foolish the gospel seemed in such a setting. He was feeling small. It says, but two things happened encouraged him. When a sparrow landed on his table inside the restaurant, he thought of Christ's words about sparrows. Then he looked across the aisle and he saw an Asian girl intently reading what appeared to be a Bible. He watched further and saw that she was indeed studying the scriptures. So he went to her and asked, I see that you are reading the Bible. Are you a Christian? She smiled and replied, oh, yes, I have found the narrow way. Her answer was remarkable. Neither he nor I in all our years in ministry had ever heard anyone answer like that. In the ensuing conversation, she explained that she had come from Korea to study at Harvard and she was the only Christian in her family. Here was a young Christian woman 10,000 miles away from her Buddhist home with its three million gods, the antithesis of the narrow way. And in the midst of Harvard's aggressive pluralism, which tolerates everything except the narrowness of the gospel, who so profoundly understood her Christian faith 
that she expressed it with unabashed, unabashed acumen as the narrow way. As you would expect, my friend Alistair Begg was encouraged that morning to preach the word which he did with great effect. This young student understood and appropriated a kingdom truth that is glossed over by so many, especially if they live in such a congenial Christian culture, namely the entrance into God's kingdom is narrow. And so it is. For those who don't like such narrowness, I must say, you know, not liking it does not preclude it from being true. You know, we live in a world that's filled with narrowness. You may not like the narrow approach of DMV, but if you want to recognize a legal driver's license or registration, you must go through this narrow way to obtain one. You may not like the interview process or the interviewer, but in order to receive a job offer, you must go through such a narrow way in order to have such an invitation extended to you. I don't know of anybody who's ever shown up at a place where they want to work and just said, I'm here, I'm going to start to work and pulled up a desk and just sat in it. You know, there's a narrowness that's involved in every area of life. It's this way. And you know what makes the narrow way the right way? Authority. The one who is in control establishes the rules. If you want to work at a certain place, you do so by the narrowness of the rules of that particular place or establishment. If you want to live in a certain country, you do so by what seems to be to some people the narrowness of the laws or the regulation that, that regulates uh, society behavior. And you do so if you want to be included as a citizen. And if you don't, then go live somewhere else. See, the reality of it is, is that we live in a very narrow society. Everywhere you turn, there's a narrow way. What makes us think that God's way should be any different as the ultimate authority says, listen, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, and if you want to go to heaven, this is the way it has to be. You repent of your sins, you recognize your need for forgiveness, you turn to God, you trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection, and you receive Him as the Savior that God claims that He is, that He is Lord to the glory of God. You receive Him as your Savior, you're born again by the will of God, not by your own efforts, and as a person who is genuinely born again, your life will change. And you will start to live in a manner that is worthy of that calling. There will be objective evidence that you're truly a child of God. And anything less than that, you are deceived and you are on the road that leads to destruction. And when the door closes, you ain't getting in. And you will spend an eternity regretting the fact that you did not believe what I said based on the authority of God's word. This isn't my plan, my idea. I'm here to represent God as a spokesman and tell you that this is what scripture teaches that is the only way jesus christ is the way the truth and the life and nobody comes unto the father but through him that is the narrowness of god's plan but praise god for all of us who enter into the narrow gate let's pray father thank you we thank you for your word we thank you for your truth that sets us free from the deception and the lies that are from the pit of hell we thank you that the path is narrow and that you have identified clearly how we are to enter in. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for his resurrection, that he was raised from the dead. 
and that he is who he claimed to be. He is who your word tells us he is, the very Savior of God for all of humanity. We thank you that your invitation is extended to everyone. And yet at the same time, tragically, we realize that not everyone will believe. God, I pray that everyone who hears these words responds appropriately and positively. That they have repented of their sin. That they have trusted in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. That they have believed upon Him whom You have sent. That they have received Him as Lord and Savior. That they are born again by Your will and not by human effort. God, I pray that our works will be, dem- will be demonstrative of those who are truly born again. That we will no longer be evildoers, but those who seek after righteousness. And God, may we never forget the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.